Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to John chapter 13 this morning. As we reflect upon a passage of Scripture that is loaded with important information for how we serve Christ, for how we deal with people, how we live this life under the sun. Before we get started, I will again be here in the worship center for an ABF class. For those who don't have a class and would like to join me, we're going to be dealing with some cultural issues, some very serious cultural issues, and we're going to address the Christian response to those cultural issues, as well as a couple of other things, and um, it's all about cultural discernment and the Scriptures and uh, trying to make sense out of what is happening in our world today if there's any sense to be found. And I'd encourage you that if you don't have a class or responsibilities, join me here in the worship center uh, for some pretty, pretty important information from the Scripture concerning how the believer has to address and deal with these things in the world. And this message, even this morning, will uh, uh, speak to that as well. Pray with me, please. Father, pray that you'd give my voice strength and stamina. I pray that you'd give my mind clarity. I thank you that I could be here and open the book, and I pray that the words that you've impressed upon me from this text in John chapter 13 would be clear, understandable, and an encouragement to all who gather here this morning for worship. I'm amazed that as I reflect upon the final week of our, our Savior's life, so chock full of deep and profound doctrine and truth, and yet so practical in application, and yet a world that is so deaf to hear, and a church that has grown hard of hearing when it comes to that Word. As we look at the words of Christ and decipher them in all of its clarity, I pray that You would speak to us through Your Word and through the guidance of your Spirit, give us clarity, not just on life, but our lives and our union with Christ and the way we live here until we hear the sound of the trumpet. So encourage us and bless us and go before us as we enter a study of your Word, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Universal Church has entered into over the course of the last numbers of weeks, but in earnest, beginning today throughout this week, uh, a remembrance and a reflection and a celebration upon the very essence of the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the very hope of our salvation. It starts at the triumphal entry, what you might know to be Palm Sunday, and it extends through the glorious resurrection and then spills over into the book of Acts to the ascension of Christ into heaven. The sum total of that gospel is reflected in the waters of baptism. It is reflected in the celebration of the Lord's table. And it is something the church must be keenly aware of and spend time remembering. Yet at the same time, as I look at much of what happens in this cultural and religious celebration of our age, I almost think that our celebrations in our churches resemble more of the pomp and circumstance and short-sightedness of Palm Sunday than it does 
the somber reflection about the crucifixion of a Savior for the sins of the world. If we were to go back and look at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, they were singing in celebration, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They would be the very same people who would chant a mere five days later, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Our churches will be filled in the course of the next week or so in this glorious celebration. Yet, I wonder how many of them really know the truth and have been set free and have been rescued from their sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. Sometimes when the emphasis is on the externals, we lose sight of what matters, and Jesus did not want His disciples to lose sight of that as He addresses them in this text. After the triumphal entry, we read about Jesus clearing the temple of the money changers who had abused and perverted the truth and the law, made the the temple a den of thieves. We read about Jesus passing a, a fig tree that was bearing no fruit and cursing that fig tree because it was bearing no fruit. And in the symbology of all that was transpiring, He was pointing out there are people who proclaim to be this, a fig tree, but they bear no fruit. And that that tree is cursed. It was a vivid example of the scribes and the Pharisees and the pomp and the circumstance, and perhaps many of those were throwing palm branches and coats on the street as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. On Wednesday of that week, He would travel to the Mount of Olives, again speak about that fig tree. And on the Mount of Olives, He would deliver what we understand to be the Olivet Discourse. The disciples say, what are the signs of the end? When when is all of this going to culminate? And Christ goes in that, that Olivet Discourse and begins to explain to them the coming of the Son of Man, the destruction of Jerusalem, and all of those things that must proceed until the end. You have to understand that these disciples were expecting that culmination to happen sooner rather than later, perhaps imminent. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is projecting out, and He's speaking of things that would have to come after because they had mistooken the real reason of Jesus coming, and they thought that He was coming as some some conquering king. They thought that He was coming as a revolutionary, but He made it very clear He was coming to seek and to save those who were lost. That was His purpose. When they said, when is it going to happen? And He enters into this long discourse, I think it was lost on the disciples, and would only become real to them as they began to, to wrestle after the fact at Pentecost and beyond the truth of who Jesus was. The day after that was the preparation and the observance of the Passover meal. That Passover meal was to commemorate in all of Israel's history the deliverance from Egypt and the bondage and slavery. That Passover would recall the, the Lamb's blood on the doorpost of those true and genuine people of God and that angel of death that would visit every single home in Egypt. 
and take the life of every firstborn son, but He would pass over because of the blood of the Lamb, the homes in whose doorposts were smeared with that blood. It was a perfect picture of what was going to transpire in the next several days after the celebration of the Passover, where that lamb is no longer this ritual sacrifice, but Jesus, the Savior of the world, who has shed His blood for many. And when we come to this table, we are not remembering a deliverance from anything in this world. We are remembering that blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. In essence, Although celebrated in Judaism today, that last Passover commemoration and celebration was the last of its kind. No longer would we depend on an animal, a lamb, but our trust would be in Christ and in Christ alone. Jesus has now gathered His own into this upper room And he's speaking to them and offering final instructions for what was going to transpire to prepare them for all that would lay ahead, and revealing to them that indeed the time and the hour had come. For what? The modern church today, and maybe some of you are obsessed with this notion of love that is defined and characterized as an emotion or a sentiment. This understanding that we need to meet people and accept them right where they are in their life. But that is not the kind of love that Jesus will display in the next couple of days in this, this week of events. And it's not the kind of love that will bring any restoration and rescue to a world dead in their trespasses and sin. And I understand the notion of meeting people where they are. Come to Sunday school. We're going to address this. What we need to be doing is showing people where they need to be. It's one thing to accept the sinner and all of that sinfulness, but unless that's connected with showing them what's wrong and broken and where they need to go, how they can find deliverance like the Passover and deliverance like the crucifixion. We have to tell the rest of the story. And unfortunately, in our mainline churches and even conservative evangelical churches, we're more concerned with this sentimental kind of love and not offending anybody than with the notion that the gospel is an offense, but it is the gospel and that truth only that will set you free, and you shall be free indeed. He's going to bring that to a conclusion as He speaks to His disciples for this hour that had come. It says in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, When the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. 
And he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part or share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put out on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, so also ought you to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you, for I know whom I have chosen. The Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling this now before it takes place, and when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and ever receives me receives the one who sent me. There's profound truth all throughout this text and these instructions that Jesus gave to His disciples as they're gathered in this quiet place probably in tune and tuned into every word that he was speaking, soaking it all in in anticipation. They were preparing for the remembrance, the feast of the Passover, and Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world and to go back to his Father. Listen carefully. The Jews and the Romans did nothing to Jesus that God had not already foreordained before the foundation of humanity as we know it. He was fully in control of what was happening. He knew the time that he was in. He knew what was going to take place and transpire. He knew the ultimate end of all of this and recognized that he was going back to his Father. Make no mistake, Jesus was not a victim. He was the Savior of the world who laid down his life as a ransom for many. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper 
laying aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Now, this is really cultural text that gives us some great understanding. As you travel through the streets at that point in time, the streets were the sewers of that day. It's where the animals traveled, and your feet would get absolutely filthy. When you would go into someone's home, one of the first things that would take place as you'd be greeted, and the lowest or the most menial servant in the house would take a basin and a towel and would wash your feet before you came into the home and reclined on the floor to dine with the homeowner. The disciples knew this custom well. They knew all about this. So when Jesus stood up and took the basin and towel, I could imagine the kind of things that were running through their heads. But in the context of all that has happened, don't miss the important words of Jesus when He says He loved His own who were in the world, and He loved them to the end. He loved those whom He loved. When we stop to think about that kind of love that He will depict and, and, and put on display here, it is juxtaposed against the hatred and the heart of Judas, the compassion of Christ even towards this Judas. His love would express to Simon Peter, even though there he goes again. You know, Peter sometimes gets a bad rap. This was no place for his Savior to be stooping in his feet with a basin and a towel, and he objected. And yet, Christ loved him with an everlasting love, and he was serving him. He was trying to, to remind them that he didn't come as a conquering king. He came as a servant to give his life as a ransom for many and this washing and cleansing of this feet was a picture or a metaphor, if you would, the spiritual cleaning that would come no longer through the rituals of the law, but through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And His blood would wash us white as snow. Again, this was so much for them to take in, and, and I'm sure as they were taking it in, their minds are trying to, to reconcile it all, but they wouldn't wouldn't be able to until it was all said and done. And he is juxtaposing again what he is calling them to in a life of service to the religious leaders of that day, and he's talking about a transformed life that is cleansed once and never has to be cleansed again. Isn't that a glorious message? Cleansed once and never again. It was appointed unto man once to die. He doesn't die over and over and over and over for your sin. When Jesus forgives you, you are clean, you are forgiven, and your sins removed as far as the east is from the west. But as you stumble through life, boy, do our feet get dirty. The clutters of the world, the sins of the culture, those private sins, that's the picture that He's painting and this simple process. So as he kneels down one by one, having pulled up his outer garment and taken his towel, takes the water out of the basin, he sprinkles it on the feet of each disciple. 
dries them with a towel. Including Judas Iscariot. Imagine. He knew. Judas was going to betray him. He knelt at his feet and he washed them. Can you imagine the powerful picture after the fact when the disciples would gather together in fear and recollect some of the events that soon take place? He then comes to Simon Peter, and Simon says, no, no, nope, you're not going to do that. That's somebody else's job. You are far greater than that. You are far bigger than that. You are far more glorious than that. I will not let you wash my feet. And Jesus answered, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will. Isn't a lot of life that way? And now you don't understand what I'm doing, but after time you will. It might not be until we get in heaven, but everything He does in our life is for a purpose and reason. And the washing of Peter's feet would have a profound impact upon him, but he didn't understand it on that day. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. This is the only way that you can be clean, and it is through me. And that would play out over the next couple of days as he makes atonement for the sins of the world. When Peter realizes that he could have no place with Jesus unless, in fact, he was washed, he said, okay, don't stop at the feet. How about the hands and the head? Do do the whole thing. And again, Jesus gives him this assurance, and it is absolute assurance that the one who was bathed does not need to wash except his feet. He is completely clean. The moment you accept Christ as Savior, you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, waiting for the sound of the trumpets, and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You're clean, but there's a place for repentance, and there's a place for confession, there's a place for us to be reminded we need to wash our feet every once in a while, having walked this journey of life. But no one falls away from God and comes back to God, and nobody gets saved more than once. When Jesus cleans you, you are clean entirely. You know the kind of security that comes from that? <laughs> it is the kind of security that tells me No matter how bad or how far I drift away from my Savior, I can never drift so far that I cannot get back to Him. I simply have to wash my feet because I am cleansed completely within. That is the security of the believer. He continues in the text and continues around the table, person by person by person, washing feet. He says, now, you are clean, but not every one of you. Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place and said to them, 
Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher, or Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also ought you to wash one another's feet. Some believe that he was instilling this memorial or sacrament that we ought to do washing feet in our services, but the language doesn't indicate it, and you'll find it no other place in the text. He was simply saying, the spirit of servanthood that I have brought before you, this, this, this reality of what I have just displayed is something that must become a part of your life. And as it becomes a part of your life, you will live different, and, and you will serve different, and you will be different because you are cleansed entirely. I've given you an example, verse 15, that you should also do as I've done to you. For truly, truly, I say to you, pay attention. He's emphasizing this point by using this literary device, truly, truly. I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. For I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Do you notice all throughout the text, Jesus says, or the text says He knew his hour had come. He knew those he loved. He knew who would betray him. He knew who would compromise him and, and, and renounce him on that night. He knew that now the atonement had come and the hour was at hand. There were no surprises to Jesus, and he knew that everyone in that room was not okay. That's chilling. He had a picture of the humility of Christ that he would still stoop and wash Judas's feet. He knew who was in that room, those whose faith was weak, Peter, namely. He knew whom was in that room, and indeed, he knows who's in this room. He knows the secrets of your heart. He knows if your feet need to be washed. He knows that some are not of Him. He knows that some are little-souled and have little faith. He he knows that some are trying to figure all of this out, but He knew, and He even knew who were His own. In fact, in John chapter 6, Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me shall come to me, and he that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Some struggle with that notion that God has chosen, but Jesus knew ahead of time who were His own. How how did that happen? Why did that happen? You say, that's not fair. Absolutely, because none of you should have been chosen. None of you. God in His grace and mercy knew you but you were formed before you were formed in your, your mother's womb. He knew you 
He prayed for you in John chapter 17. He knows his own. And as he speaks to his own, he said, I've given you an example. And this is how you need to to serve. And this is what you need to do. And I'm going to send you out. And if you take this message and service, I've called you to serve. If someone receives you, they receive me. And if someone rejects you, they reject me. And that is the introduction to our Easter message about the thief on the cross. What was that all about? Well, you have to come next week. Truth of the matter, Jesus was painting a picture of salvation, painting a picture of sanctification with the cleaning of one's feet, painting a picture of security, saying, I know you, I know you, I know you. It reminds me, again, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and, they give, and I give unto them eternal life. As Jesus knows all that is transpiring, He is teaching them to be humble and loving in their service to others as they take this gospel, and the key to humility is this love. But love without truth is sentimental and emotional. It doesn't help anybody. And to accept someone from where they are instead of telling them where they need to be is not loving at all because they're dead and they're trespasses in sin. Jesus was not a wimp, and He wasn't a liar. And we have adopted this passage and other passages and written in, this isn't original to me, I've read it in numerous places, an 11th commandment. Have you ever heard of the 11th commandment? It goes like this, thou shalt be nice. Was it nice? When Jesus identified Judas said, you're not one of us. Is it nice? And Jesus looked at Peter and said, pipe down. You don't know what you're talking about. Is it nice when we go to those caught up in sin and say, you're in need of a Savior. Let me introduce you to the Savior. The problem with this 11th commandment in evangelicalism today is it overrides the rest of the ten. So the first ten don't matter as long as you're nice. Listen carefully. The gospel is an offense to those who don't believe, but the gospel brings life that can never be taken away, a cleansing that never needs to be cleansed again, a security that nothing in this world can rob you of, and a promise that as He goes to His Father in heaven, He will prepare a place for you. And one day he will call you, and so shall you ever be with the Lord. This is powerful stuff, not known entirely to these disciples, but they knew. D.A. Carson commenting on this text, particularly with Judas, says, with, what's, with such power and status at his disposal, we might have expected Jesus to defeat the devil in an immediate flashy confrontation right in that room and to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath, but instead He washes the disciples' feet, including the feet of the betrayer. How do we balance those things? That is the essence of the Christian life. 
the heart of a servant, at least the heart of Christ, had come to seek and to save, not to be served, but to serve others and to give His life as a ransom for many. He calls us, He commands us, that greater love has no man than this, that He laid on His life for His friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And at the right time, and this was that time, Christ died for the ungodly, and that was everybody in this room. The example of Christ is a powerful example of change and transformation. Not a nice little story of religious pomp and circumstance. And not a story about just accepting people the way they are and never take them to where they need to be. It is a story of humility and servanthood combined with an unabashed and confident truth that speaks to the heart of the people that we come in contact with. And it'll either be received or it'll either be rejected. But we must serve with a servant's heart. But we have to tell the truth to Judas. I have to tell the truth to Peter. I have to tell the truth to ourselves when we look in the mirror. That is a balancing act that most of us struggle with but you don't need to struggle because if you know Him, He's equipped you to live that way. If you know Him, He's equipped you to love that way. If you know Him, He's equipped you with the truth that sets men free to speak that way. If you know Him, you're not afraid of the world, the threats or the challenges. If you know Him, you know that you are clean and will never again be dirty except your feet and you are secure in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? There are probably some Peters here. Faith is small. There are some Judases here. You don't know Him. You don't know Him. There are people here. For every single one of us, it is truth that sets us free, and we shall be free indeed. And Jesus was laying things in order for what would happen on the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And it's the essence of the gospel that we will return to on Easter Sunday morning. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this passage of Scripture that we don't want to add to, but we don't want to take it away. Thank you for this passage that speaks of such deep spiritual truth, and yet in simplicity, a lifestyle of servanthood that is contrary to the world in which we live. And thank you for your Holy Spirit who allows us to navigate to express and manifest a spirit of humility as servants. It grants us the boldness to speak the truth that sets men free. So often we're not up to the task. Prepare us 
and the example that You've set for Your glory alone and turn us out into this world to take that message to whomever might receive. And may it be for Your glory alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.